following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians are People Too. So, Brian, back in the studio. Yeah, good to be here. It's a lovely fall day. What pods do you listen to? I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen while I walk my dog. I listen while I work out. I listen when I'm doing dishes in the morning. Um, so I've got a lot going. Uh, but one of the my favorites right now is uh, called Fox Hunter. It's a, a true crime podcast. Um, Sean Kipe does that one. And then for years, I've been listening to uh, Jonathan Goldstein's Heavyweight. That's uh, that's one where he kind of goes back and tries to solve problems from, from people's past. And the uh, fun podcast I'm listening to right now is uh, Radio Rental. And it's a Payne Lindsay podcast, uh, uh, Georgia guy. But the uh, voice is done by Rain Wilson oh, from The Office. That's funny. Yeah, it's a good one. What's it about? So Radio Rental is uh, it's supposed to be it's true stories about the paranormal, supernatural. Oh, okay. And uh, so people call in and uh, and you know tell their stories, and sometimes they turn out to be like really weird things, like my close encounter with a serial killer. Some of them are right. about ghosts and stuff. But uh, Rain Wilson has a character he's developed called Terry Carnation that hosts the show, and uh, it's it's really wild. I I. I highly recommend it. What about you? That what do you sounds wild. To? You got a lot of long drives back and forth. So. No, I do. Um, I, I I have fun with with pods. Um, kind of, you know, I bounce back and forth between you know listening to pods and listening to music. Of course, I've downloaded a lot of music during the pandemic. Yeah. So I had to catch up on that. But um, longtime listener to Mark Marin's WTF podcast, his interviews with all sorts of people, but mainly people in entertainment. Yeah. And it's always, you know, pretty interesting. Uh, he just interviewed George Clooney the other day and a really good one with the chef, uh, David Chang. Which oh, was yeah. Really an interesting uh, chat with him. And I like uh, Hang Up and Listen, a Slate sports podcast, Stefan Fatsis and Josh Levin. Uh, it's it's always pretty good. And they get into like sports issues. It's less about, you know, say the NBA playoffs, although they'll talk about that. It's more about issues in sports yeah. and things like that. That's always interesting. Uh, I just recently started listening to You're Dead to Me. It's a history podcast from the UK. Hmm. Kind of irreverent, you know, pretty yeah. funny, but there's, you know, like a one one host and then usually a historian type, but it's, it's usually pretty, you know, it's, it's entertaining and then also really interesting. But, and then uh, I did a podcast with Adele Ali. Uh, he does the peel.news, which I highly recommend that Adele talks with, oh, professors and, you know, uh, scholars, other, other journalists sometimes about what's going on in the news, but providing a historical perspective to that. So thus the peel. Right. Okay. And, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, I mean, everything from, you know, COPE 26, they just got through, he just did one on that, which that, you know, that's, that just ended actually uh, in Glasgow, you know, Haiti, anything going on in the U S and of course, you know, he did several on Afghanistan, including uh, a really good one on, on the fall of Kabul and comparing to the fall of Saigon and war termination. Episode 30. Check that out. I think I know the guy that did that one with him. Yeah, yeah. some hack. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's worth your time. But, yeah, pods are fun. Um, and hopefully, you know, some people will find what we're doing. 
uh, entertaining and, and get something out of it. Yeah. It'd be so, nice if we make someone's list. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, who are, who are we going to be talking with today? Well, we got another good one. It seems to be the, the recurring theme. Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Kyle Longley. Uh, Kyle is a professor of history and director of the War and Society MA program at uh, Chapman University out in California. Uh, he's a training by training a historian of American foreign relations and diplomatic history, but has gravitated toward war and society studies, both in teaching and research, you know, in the past several years. Uh, he's a native of Texas. Uh, Got his bachelor's degree from Angelo State University, then an MA from Texas Tech. Uh, he got his PhD at the University of Kentucky. And beginning in 1995, he uh, started as a professor at Arizona State University. He held the Snell Family Distinguished Professorship there for many years. He's a publishing madman. While he was in Tempe, I don't know how many books he put out. But several on Latin America, including the Eagle's Shadow, the United States and Latin America, the Sparrow and Hawk, Costa Rica and the United States during the rise of Jose Figueres, which I got, I probably just butchered the heck out of that. <laughs> um, forgive me all. And but then he started getting into kind of the soldier experience in Vietnam. And uh, one, he has two books that I really, really love. And, and I think I, I recommend them highly if you're interested in the Vietnam War. Uh, the first one's called Grunts, the American Combat Soldier in Vietnam. And then the Marinchi Marines, a small, a tale of a small town America in the Vietnam War. And that's a really good localized history of the Vietnam War experience. It's about these young men from the small mining town in Arizona who join up and, and their, their war experience, but also what their, their experience they, they brought back to the town uh, those that survived. And then, of course, you know, the town's experience with the war itself. And it's really good. Uh, in fact, it serves as the model of my Vietnam War class. I use it as the model for for a project students do called uh, the Vietnam War in my, my hometown. Okay. Yeah. And it's really, uh, I highly recommend it. But his LBJ's 1968 Power Politics and the Presidency in America's Europe of Evil is also very good. And he's recently co-authored a American military history textbook, In Harm's Way, A History of the American Military Experience, which is also very good. And he's working on a book uh, on uh, a soldier experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, very similar to Grunt's, just applying that concept to the recent conflicts. And also, I think, a very similar to, to the Marinchi Marines, the unlucky ones, Lima Company and Marines in, in Iraq. But this guy's an award-winning teacher. Uh, if you spend any time around him, you can tell why he's an award-winning teacher. He's just a very gregarious, outgoing guy. Uh, he's named the Centennial Professor for his outstanding teacher at Arizona State. He was also awarded the Zebulon Pierce Award for outstanding teaching in the humanities there at Arizona State, as well as the Arizona State Habitat for Humanity, Making the World a Cooler Place to Live Teaching Award. Nice. So, that's, that's some good chops there. Absolutely. But he served briefly uh, after leaving Arizona State as the director of the LBJ Presidential Library in Austin and, uh, you know, stayed there for a brief stint and then joined the faculty at Chapman in 2020, where he runs their Warren Society MA program. He speaks all over the place, including my mom's retirement community in Austin, Longhorn Village, out by uh, Lake Travis. So shout out to Longhorn Village. My mom loves him, thinks he's, thinks he's just the greatest guy in the world. So I'm, I'm excited we, we've got him to chat with. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, let's talk to Kyle. 
hit you with some other things. And we, we have a segment at the end we're calling rapid fire, although it's kind of turning into slow burn because yeah. it, it, you know, we start going and then we'll stop and really get into something to response. And, right. you know, we were talking with Lori and foot and we had, her, we asked her a question about the sec and, you know, Texas and OU and what that means for A&M. And of course she's an OU grad and she's just like, you know, Bring back the big eight, you know, stuff like that. So hey, I, I personally think the, uh, you know, UT and Oklahoma leaving is not going to hurt the big 12 that much, um, especially if they keep playing the way they have. Right. No, I, I, my mom actually sent, sent me a great meme. I was telling Brian about earlier. It's it's a picture of Bevo and it says breaking news. Bevo enters the transfer portal, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. And Brian, I'll apologize in advance. I'm a son of a Texas football coach. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the old joke, and Bill knows this, Friday Night Lights was not a book. It was life. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, I, yeah. I grew up in South Carolina, so I don't have the same, uh, you know, not to the same degree, but uh, but I can I can follow. Well, Kyle, let's get into that. Yeah. Uh, where, where did you grow up in Texas, and, and what was it like being the son of, of the football coach? Well, the old joke is there's only two types of coaches in Texas. Those have been fired and those are going to get fired. So <laughs> you get to move a lot. So I, I moved all over the state. I, if I were to call a place home, I'd say West Texas, uh, out in the Odessa Midland area. Um, and so, you know, out in the oil patch. Uh, but, you know, we lived in Central Texas, just outside of San Antonio. We lived in Abilene for a number of years. Uh, which I still regret, but uh, that's a different story. Uh, you know, as a friend of mine says about Abilene, that's where the, uh, you, you go to uh, die, or, or you you uh, go to die, or where you go after you die. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, but yeah, out in the West Texas area, I originally uh, went to uh, Howard Payne University and played football for a year, that's then right. transferred over yeah. to Angelo State. Uh, the joke is, uh, first day I dropped back to pass and got hit in the back of the head by a guy 6'5", 285 that could outrun me. I figured, you know, there might be a better way of living uh, than playing college football. So I, I joked, I decided to become a javelin thrower because who's going to screw with the javelin throwers? At least we're armed. Uh, so I transferred to Angelo State and actually my first degree was in mathematics. Um, I studied math. Thought that's what I was going to do and go uh, originally to be a high school teacher and football coach, just like my dad, um, but then decided, well, maybe I'll go get my PhD in mathematics. And then I took advanced calculus and it wasn't because I didn't love advanced calculus. It's actually a great class. But one day I was up at the front board and I looked around, I, you know, I was talking to the professor before class. And as I turned around to go back and sit in my uh, seat, I looked at the people I was going to be teaching the rest of my life. And this is the late 1980s. And you can guess what the room looked like. Half were Air Force ROTCers. The other half were, uh, how do I put this night? Nerds. Uh, and who I loved and ran around with. Uh, but I just thought, I can't do this the rest of my life. And so about that same time, I got thrown into a history class because the schedule got blown up by a professor leaving three days before the semester. And I got thrown into a history of Mexico and I was hooked. Uh, and at that point, decided to stay an extra year, get my history degree, then went off to Texas Tech to work on my master's degree, and then eventually to the University of Kentucky, where I studied with George Herring. So what was it about that history of Mexico class? Do you remember what, what kind of grabbed you about it? 
Yeah, I think uh, part of it was mid 80s, uh, mid to late 80s. Central America was all over the news. Right. Um, living in West Texas, uh, you know, your orientation is not to the Northeast or to Europe. You're, you look south. When 50% of my high school was Latino, uh, you know, everything was basically oriented towards the border and toward looking. We were much closer to Mexico City than we were DC. So, I think that helped sort of shape it. And again, I, I would argue the thing that hooked me was actually in that history of Mexico course, I started getting interest. And then they threw Walter Lefebvre's Inevitable Revolutions at me right. uh, for one of my readings in between semesters. And I was hooked uh, with all that was going on in Central America, the Sandinistas, the what was going on in uh, El Salvador. Uh, it was the sort of big issue of uh, my sort of political in my political maturation. So at that point, I'm hooked. And so I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, so they they sent me off to Texas Tech first because we had a very good relationship at Angelo State with the people at Tech. In fact, my two favorite uh, faculty members were Tech grads. And But at Tech, they said, you know, you really need to look at something even bigger. And one of my mentors there uh, had gone to grad school with George Herring. He says, you need to look at George. Uh, he's one of the best guys in the world, great scholar. Uh, you don't have to study the Vietnam War. He's done a little bit on Central America. So right. why don't you go up there? And it was there or UT Austin. And I, I met the two advisors, Bob Devine at UT, who was a very good scholar. But once you meet George, you would understand why uh, that was an easy sell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the gentlemen of the profession, one of the giants of the profession. And yeah, that's a that's a good a, a good thing to consider for any um, young historians out there. Is very often it's about who you're going to work with, not where you're going to go. And you know, you should really pay a lot of attention to uh, the relationship you're going to have with your your mentor. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you you can go to Harvard, you can go to Yale, and those will carry you. Uh, quite a bit, but if you don't have a good relationship with your uh, doctoral advisor, it's not going to do you any good. I know, uh, Brian, I don't know your background as well as I know Bill's, but, you know, Gary Hess is a, another example of a very good mentor, and, you know, the, the thing about it was our field in foreign relations where I started, uh, they really nurtured the young faculty. Um, you know, Richard Emmerman was very influential. Walt Lefebvre was right. hugely influential, but there were others uh, along the way, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, Marilyn Young, uh, there's just a whole group of scholars that really, they really took an interest in you. They tried to nurture you. And I, I hope uh, my uh, generation of foreign relations and military and all across the board are doing the same. Uh, not just for our own students, but for anyone that's in the field. And yeah. I think generally we're pretty successful at that. So when, when did you graduate from high school? Uh, good question. 82. 82. Okay. So I graduated yeah. 85. Yeah. And, and it sounds like we both like jumped into this because, because I know I did, I jumped into this history thing, not having a real clue as to what it was all about and how it worked or anything. Because you just said something a while ago, how you went there and didn't really know what was going on, really. So the learning curve was was steep, just as, as, as getting attuned to the discipline and the profession and things like yeah. that, because it was for me. Yeah, I always tell the story, this is how raw I was. Uh, you know, uh, my first seminar, uh, it was on US foreign relations. 
or one of my first seminars was on US foreign relations and we get to the Vietnam section and we're discussing it. And um, you know, we get to a, a section on 68 and I'm talking to the professor and I'm talking about Hugh and not understanding it was way, uh, you know, but that's how raw I was. I just didn't have that kind of depth. I didn't have any kind of family background that would actively know uh, how to encourage me to, you know, what to pursue. I mean, my family still don't understand what I do. Uh, my mother still cannot understand why I can't just move down the street to teach at TCU or wherever they're close to right now, right. which is TCU or North Texas or any of those schools there in the DFW area. And they just don't understand. I didn't understand. And it took a lot of uh, great mentoring. I have wonderful mentors at Tech. Uh, it's a great history department. I think it's actually gotten much, much better over the years with the Vietnam Archive and the emphasis that's been put on mili military history with Ron Milam and Justin Hart, that whole group. I would highly recommend that as a great program, but they mentored me. And the same with George. Uh, we call him the chief because uh, he was always the chair of the department. So he was like the chief executive. So we didn't even call, I, I only have gotten after 20 years to the point I call him George. Uh, you know, it's always still Dr. Herring or the chief. So I'm the same. Uh, I'm the same way with 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 Gary Hess. Yeah, yeah working with I, him at Bowling Green. It's only recently that, you know, I, I can. Hey, Gary. <laughs> you know. I still struggle. Uh, you know, I still struggle with that. But I had good mentors, and it wasn't just George at UK. I had some really good mentors. Uh, but again, even outside of UK, I had some wonderful mentors like Richard and uh, Walt and, you know, just a whole series of wonderful scholars that, you know, took uh, a, a good old boy from West Texas and hopefully transformed him into something, at least is doing some kind of productive work, you know, both in foreign relations, politics and military. So was it, uh, was it your experience in those early seminars that, that really pulled you towards diplomatic and political history, or, or did you kind of go into it with... Uh with an inkling that you might want to go down that path? I had no clue. Uh, I'd never even taken a foreign relations class before I got to grad school. So, you know, I knew that I always had an interest like in U.S. and Central America. Um, but I had to, you know, it just sort of, I, I gravitated that way. Uh, I originally planned to do like Latin American studies. You know, I have the first two books are on U.S. and Latin America, but I wouldn't call myself that, you know, I wasn't diversified enough to characterize myself as a Latin American studies, but I do have a strong field in Latin America. And still, if you were to ask me where my heart lies, that's the region that I would say, uh, yeah. if you were to say, you know, and I do a lot of things that are still related to Latin America, like immigration asylum consulting. Uh, where I get called in to be an expert witness on country conditions, and primarily for Central America, Mexico, the Caribbean basin, and then the northern uh, sort of nations of South America. So I still use my Latin America on a daily basis. In fact, I'm set to uh, be a uh, sort of a expert witness next week for training for about 300 lawyers in New York. So there my Latin America still, and like I say, that's still where my heart lies. Uh, and someday I'll get back to it a little bit more in uh, detail, but too many other subjects have jumped up in between. Now, you, uh, you said you grew up around a lot of, uh, you know, Spanish speakers. Did you find that you, you had a pretty good handle uh, on Spanish when you decided you wanted to start doing the history of Latin America, or did you have to go get some serious language training? Serious language training. You know, I could cuss with the best of them. 
uh, you know, I could talk about your mama and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, anything that you wanted to do to get in a fight, I could pretty much talk Spanish in, but <laughs> as far as being able to do something that was practical, uh, that didn't get your posterior kicked, uh, I had to do it intensive. And that was part of the good thing of staying around the last year or so, uh, in undergrad and catching up on history. I also caught up on language to the point that, you know, even in my Marinci book, uh, my favorite book, I, I use Spanish to um, often, uh, sometimes do interviews uh, because uh, the area that I was working in was predominantly Spanish and some of them were first uh, level Spanish speakers, English as a second language. So yeah. even as in that, but you know, my first couple of books spending time in Central America, um, it was enough where I'm functional. Uh, although I've lost the you know, to a, a significant degree, but give me about a month or six weeks back in country and I'll be at least functional. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that moving from your early work, you know, in Latin America, everything you, you did, you know, you've done books on Reagan and Al Gore Sr., right? You, I mean, your, your, your range is just really very impressive of what you've published on, but how did you get to, how did the, the Grunts book come, come about? Because yeah. that was before Marinci, right? You did Grunts first. Yeah, but here's the irony of that. I started Marinci first, realized gotcha. I didn't understand the macro story well enough to be able to write the micro story. So I went back and wrote Grunts. Uh, and so that was, it was a, really a reversal. Uh, I started Marinci book in probably, well, I'm telling you, you know, I, I saw the newspaper article in, you know, 2000 and sort of uh, filed that away, but started to work on it. You know, I was working on the Gore biography. I had a, a Reagan uh, set of essays. I was doing a book on in, uh, called In the Eagle's Shadow. And so I sort of filed that away and just kept sort of plugging away. But then I realized very much, I mean, there's some good works like Chris Appy's Working Class War, but, you know, that's very much a Boston-centered, uh, very narrow slice of Americana. And I knew I needed to understand the bigger macro story. So that's when I did grunts. Uh, but I was working, like as you noted, a U.S. Latin American relations book, a biography of a, uh, you know, a U.S. senator, uh, a book on conservative mythology around Reagan. Then grunts came along. So uh, as you say, well, I, I won't say I've got great breath. I just I have multiple interests, and some will say I'm a jack of all trades and a master of absolutely none. So you know, uh, and that's fine. I don't have any problem with being characterized that. As I tell my students, I just do what interests me. And if, you know, the Marinci story came as far as a newspaper article, and I looked at it and go, this is a book. And no, I was not a military historian, but in the reality, the Marinci Marines is not a military history in many ways. But the Marinci book was, I would argue, more of a social cultural history than it is a military history. Oh, absolutely. A traditional Absolutely. And, and there I was influenced by my graduate professors, my, particularly my Latin American professor and my Asian professor, because I took fields in those areas and they were both social cultural. And they really show me the depth of the, uh, you know, historiography and, you know, theory around uh, that, those topics. And I really, like I say, I don't, sometimes I have a hard time characterizing myself in what field I'm in, but, I think that's a mistake when people try to do that. 
you know, the way I always hammered our graduate students over at ASU when I was the DGS, I said, first and foremost, you're a historian. I, you know, you're not a historian of Native American tribe of, of someplace in California from 1955 to 1965. You're first and foremost a historian. That's your research and your interest, but you're a historian. And if you're good at it, you should be able to uh, go very broadly. You know, that's something that we've, that, that has come up, I think, just naturally in our conversations with folks in the few interviews we've done so far mm -hmm. is, is what you just got at is, is this idea of labeling, uh, that, that our profession still insists on labeling so that you can portray yourself as unique when in reality, we're all doing the same thing, you know, in, in essence. I mean, the, the I have, course, is, this is what we are. It's, it's, yeah. it's an interesting thing. Yeah, well, it's, I had a friend, actually, he teaches up at the Naval War College, and he's, he, he's all over the place, too, so I don't know why he gave me this. He says, Kyle, you really got to be able to define yourself better. Um, you know, you, you're all over the place. You know, how's that going to help you in the job market? How's that going to do this, that, and the other? And I was like, I don't care. You know, just don't care. Uh, if that's part of the process, then um, so be it, you know, and maybe I don't qualify for that. Maybe some will say, well, you're not a military historian. Although I will give the uh, military history people a lot of credit. They've opened, uh, they've, they've greeted me with open arms. I've never had, the only group that's ever given me any grief was Southern historians over Senator Gore. Uh, they were very, uh, protective you know, of that. Yeah. very, Territorial. very protective. Yeah, very territorial, parochial in many ways. Not all, of course, but if I had people giving me grief along the way for being broad, that, that was the group that gave me, you know, and, uh, and of course, you know, the foreign relations people, I'm one of theirs. So, you know, I sit on the Schaefer Council. Yeah, Schaefer's um, a big tent. They're, they're good. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge tent. And that's the thing I love about Schaefer. And the SMH uh, has become that way too. I mean, it's become yeah. a very big tent. You know, Schaefer is probably a little bit ahead of SMH in terms of diversity of groups and gender and things like that. But they both have sort of similar open arms. We're not going to exclude you because you don't do the type of... Now, there are always people within the fields that feel that way, but generally that's not the attitude. Yeah, we struggled. We struggled a little bit in, you know, what, what, what do we what do we name this thing, this podcast, right? Yeah. Uh, because because, you know, there's not a lot of podcasts out there, Kyle. And, oh, I know. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot. And, and oh, we had no. the, yeah. So but we just came up with military historians and people, too, because, you know, one, that's where we gravitate in our interests. Yeah. And and but but that more than anything, it was just a, a searchable thing you know, on podcast platforms, uh, you know, put in military history, then it's going to pop up. Right. So that's why we did it. But, you know, a lot of people we're talking with, you know, like yourself and, and frankly, myself too, because like you, I'm trained actually in diplomatic and foreign relations history and have morphed over to this. And so many people are just touching upon their topics are military oriented. You know, they may not con consider themselves that. But again, that goes back to that whole labeling thing. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. we... We, uh, we, we've got an online MA concentration in Warren Society starting up in the fall. And when we started talking to our colleagues about it, we found that, that they would say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't do that. And, and we would say, no, you, you study nurses in the Civil War. You, you are completely, <laughs> you know, what we're looking for here. You are a Warren Society, but, you know, they, they didn't see themselves as being military historians. 
No, I mean, we're undergoing this transformation in our own program here at Chapman. You know, we've got this wonderful Warren Society program, but we're actually about to broaden it, uh, partly at the uh, request of the president and a number of people to war diplomacy in society, uh, because we see them all integrated. It also helps us integrate into the larger university much better. You know, political science, IR people would say, no, we don't do that. You know, we're not war in society. And I'm like, yeah, you really are. But to sort of appease you, Here's diplomacy too. But you know, two of our, uh, every year we bring in two State Department FSOs mid-career to go through the program. And so I, I don't th know how you divorce any of this. It's all completely interrelated. You know, we've got a strength, a, a good friend, of, uh, one of my young colleagues, Matteo Hartin, uh, is writing on the Sandinista. Uh, it's more diplomacy, but it's also Latin America. And the Sandinistas were constantly at war. So how can you divorce any of these? But we're going to rename uh, just so we can have a bigger tent and also give our students more of an opportunity to maybe, you know, State Department would be more likely to look at them or, you know, some of these other groups, NSA, if they have that diplomacy sort of bit. Because you guys probably like us trying to explain what war in society is right. uh, to yeah, a hard. general audience is a, you know, donors, whomever it may be. It's not an easy task. And once you do, then they sort of the light bulb goes on, but you got to work at it. So oh, the Grunts book, second edition, right? Mm -hmm. Did Jackie Witt have, did she help you with that? What? what? What I wanted was on the second edition. One, I was having a hard time. I, I won't lie. My attention span is about 30 seconds. Uh, on many things. And so I have a hard time wanting to go back and write on something that I've already done, uh, you know, for second editions. I did it with the In the Eagle Shadow and struggle. So I'm struggling trying to get uh, interest in doing this second edition. So I thought, well, you know what? There's some topics that I haven't done as well in this book. And Jackie would be perfect to fill in, you know, things like chaplains and more on the gender issues that I had not covered. And so I just reached out to Jackie and I said, Jackie, will you help me? And she jumped right on board and was a wonderful addition. And her sections that she added, I think, just strengthened the second edition. So, you know, I like sharing uh, those kind of things. Yeah. But she, she's just she, energetic brilliance, isn't she? Oh, she's that, that's work. We're going to talk to her in a few weeks. We're yeah. And, you know, like it's I say, fun. to me, I just started looking around and her subjects just made sense for being an addition. And I just didn't have the energy. I was more interested in moving on, you know, and it was about the time they wanted me. It was about, I think it was in 17 or 18, they asked me to start working on the second edition. And I was just finishing up LBJ 68. We were just finishing up the uh, co-authored uh, In Harm's Way. You know, like you say, my mindset is let's move to the next one. And so adding Jackie was a, uh, one of the best moves that I could have possibly made. You know, I'm very happy with the second edition and mainly because she did uh, most of the uh, transformation and the additions. Well, and I, I imagine that bringing her on allowed you to uh, get into what you're writing about right now. You're looking at combat soldiers and Marines in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, is are you taking the same approach you did with the uh, the Grunts book for Vietnam? Or are you with that short attention span? Are you, are you shifting it? No, I think actually it, it, it's going to be a replication to a point of Grunts. It, and, you know, the good thing about Grunts is... I've had so many Vietnam veterans go, man, this was my life story. Uh, you know, there may have been some variations depending on, you know, branch of service when I was there, but you know, you covered the, the big stuff. And that's what I'm trying to do with this. And the, uh, but there is a major difference. I think there's 
two, three major differences between grunts and what's coming up in the new book called The Forever Soldiers. One is the presence of the National Guard and Reserves in such significant numbers. Right. Uh, which but you don't have that in happen. Vietnam. Right. Yeah, it did not happen in Vietnam. Women in combat, especially by, you know, 2008, 2009, being in a Muslim country, you know, needing people to be able to search the women. And that just uh, morphed into, you know, additional uh, duties that basically put them in combat roles. Or, you know, the National Guard, for example, had a larger number of women doing things like security, which in, by the time they get to Iraq is a uh, combat position. You know, you see early on uh, all the different stories. And I think the other, uh, so women combat, National Guard and Reserves, and the one I just wrote about in the Washington Post, contractors. I don't think people appreciate the amount of service that was done by the contractors. Now, yes, people will characterize, oh, they were just mercenaries. They only did it for money. Uh, that's grossly oversimplified. A lot of them were former military themselves. But I think, you know, if you look at the casualty figures, more contractors died in the most recent wars than U.S. military. Uh, in Afghanistan, it was about 50% more contractors died over U.S. military. So that is a major part of the story. You know, but when I started, I didn't realize uh, how much it was going to be. But, you know, as far as the approach, like the choosing the topics, uh, you know, using sort of a topical approach rather than you know, trying to write a, a chronological narrative that is certainly um, what I've adopted for uh, the Forever Soldiers. So I think it was a good prep and, you know, it may actually come out, you know, the Grunts book helped inform the Marinci book. And I've got another one that I'm looking at uh, maybe down the road about Lima Company out of Ohio, a Marine Reserve unit that just got decimated. Uh, Ruben Gallego, uh, the congressman from Arizona has just published his memoir, and he was part of Lima Company. Uh, and if you don't know the story, I'm sure you guys do, but some might not. Uh, it was a uh, Marine Reserve unit out of central Ohio, uh, mainly farm boys, uh, you know, working class kids, joined the reserves, uh, worked through that, and then got activated in 0506, went to Iraq. In the first six months, take no casualties, but in, then in a four-month period, take 25 KIA, uh, which you know was a significant uh, loss. 11 died in one day. So, Lord, you know, that yeah. may be the feed into the next book or one of the next books. God knows what I'll, uh, you know, choose. Uh, I'm going to just see what interests me on that particular day. And as Bill knows, I usually work one or two books at the same time. Uh, are two books at the same time because my uh, my attention span is very limited. And so if I get bored with one, I move to the other. And that way I never lose uh, time and I'm making progress and moving forward. So that's just my uh, approach. I know I, I don't encourage my grad students to try to work two projects at the same time. So, but that's my, uh, it works for my mentality. We're gonna give you uh, a minute to refocus. We're gonna pause for a break. And then when we come back, we're going to ask you to tell us a little bit about your time at the LBJ Library. Hey, folks, Military Historians for People Too wants to give a big shout out to the University Press of Kansas, founded in 1946 and representing the six universities in the Sunflower State, the University Press of Kansas publishes work on a wide range of history, including regional studies, American politics, the presidency, public policy, and legal studies. But in our biased opinion, 
The University Press of Kansas is best known for its outstanding books on military history, including the longstanding series Modern War Studies, Civil-Military Relations Studies, and the War on the Screen series, among others. Kansas books reach a wide audience both inside and outside the scholarly universe and have been recognized for their contributions to important scholarly and public debates. Follow the University Press of Kansas on Twitter at Kansas underscore press and visit www.kansaspress.ku.edu for more information. Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Well, Kyle, thanks again for, for being with us. Uh, we wanted to ask you a little bit about your, your time as, as director of the LBJ Library. It's a pretty unique opportunity that, that came along. And just curious about, you know, what, what attracted you to that? Why did you decide to, to go that direction? Uh, you know, you've given up tenure, a tenure track position, tenured position and stuff at Arizona State to go, go do this. And I know you were working on your LBJ book. In fact, it was already out by then, right? Yeah, and it was out uh, by that point. So, yeah. You know, they'd done a search and it failed several times. Um, and so then they finally did this other search and they called me up. Um, several people called me up and said, we'd like for you to apply. So you've been uh, there a lot for researching and you've given exactly. talks and stuff. Because I, I know you, I saw you on, you know, turn on C-SPAN. Oh, look, there's Kyle Longway again. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, and I had ties to, yeah, I mean, the two things that were most attractive. One, LBJ is a fascinating character. Now oh, he's yeah. a son of a bitch. Uh, you know, uh, but he was a consummate politician and gave you so much material to work with. I mean, Shakespearean. This, he is just truly Shakespearean. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and yeah. he gave you this. I mean, my 68 book is one that's probably most recognizable among the general public. Uh, and but I mean, it's one, it's a biography of LBJ, but it's also a biography of 1968, which right. is in its own right. It gave me some really good material to work with. Um, so yeah, this came along. They encouraged me to apply. I did. And, you know, I was 24 years into the profession. And I think sometimes when you've been in the academic world for so long, you forget how good we have it. So you start looking around and we had some problems at ASU. Uh, we had a, uh, plagiarism case of a senior colleague that had made the front page of the Arizona Republic and also the Chronicle of Higher Education that created a toxic environment followed by some leadership changes that created even further toxicity. And so it, it got, my first 15 years there were wonderful. A, a great thing, they gave me a chair, they gave me all these things, and it was a really good place to work. You know, the same, you know, problems, but a good place to work. But then it hit this toxicity again. So I thought, well, you know, I'm gonna look around. And of course, the other major part of it is Austin, uh, not far from my family. Uh, not far from where I'd been raised. So, you know, Austin is a great place. It's losing some of its appeal just because everybody knows it's a great place and they're moving there and changing the whole dynamic. Well, Elon Musk is there now, so. Yeah, well, that, that, there's, a, there's another but he's reason. he's out of your hair now, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there, there's another reason to say, you know, it's going downhill, uh, you know, but I think, you know, that was the attractive, be close to family, uh, close to my best friends, a lawyer in Austin, uh, since undergrad. Uh, so, you know, we had all these things, although Bill, you're my best friend. Uh, you know. <laughs> you're very kind. Like <laughs> he's, he's a best friend. You're my brother from another mother. So, uh, you know, uh, we have that kind of relationship, which I, I sincerely appreciate. Uh, Absolutely. but 
this came along, they interviewed, uh, it was a long drawn out process, which if you work with the federal government, you realize uh, is gonna be the case. And so it looked good. It's a good presidential library. The archivists there are absolutely the best in the business. They're fabulous. Uh, yeah. You know, I can name half a dozen that are at the top of the profession. Um, so I, I took it on, they gave me the job, um, you know, after a series of interviews. Uh, and so we moved there and started this and man, did I learn a lot. Now I knew the archives pretty well. But I didn't know the museum side very well. I didn't know some of the education side as well, uh, but especially the museums where I learned so much. Uh, we had all kinds of valuable materials there. Uh, so, you know, we were managing security because we had paintings that had been given to the president in excess of $3 million, uh, sitting down in vaults. Uh, so there were all kinds of things you learned to manage. Of course, UT is very intimately involved, so you had to manage that side. And uh, there were all kinds of things that were new and interesting, but there were some challenges from the beginning. Um, first and foremost, uh, the National Archives is a horrible place to work. Uh, the leadership in the National Archives is some of the worst leadership I've ever seen. And I've been in universities that I thought were not well run. But here's the first thing that sort of set uh, me to looking and that was when they told me that our employee satisfaction rankings were below TSAs. Um, I didn't think that was possible, uh, but the National Archives had found a way to do it. And so, you know, there were some things there going on and I think some other things that were sort of uh, going on too. One, I, I missed the students. Uh, I'd forgotten how much that meant. And I also missed tenure and freedom of speech. Because, uh, you know, if I wanted to do an op-ed, it'd take a month to get it approved. And by that point, nobody cared. Right. So there were a lot of things that sort of started to boil up and uh, mainly related to the leadership in DC. You know, I had a boss, I couldn't get her to respond to me for three weeks on something that was important, like, do we loan out the $3 million painting to a, a museum in Dallas? You know, those kind of things, they don't really prep you for in grad school. And, but then um, we, you know, I, I, when we went on uh, furlough for 30 something days, there was another sign for you. Uh, 35 days of furlough, uh, no paychecks, you know, uh, worried about your employees, uh, not being able to make ends meet and lose their houses, whatever it may be. I didn't change my, uh, I had to say in a message, we're out on furlough, we'll be back to you. I didn't change it within a day to, oh, we're back. So she called me four times in one day uh, to tell me that I needed to change my voicemail. It was that kind of stuff that started making you go, hey, you know, academic life is pretty damn good. Uh, it can have its headaches, no doubt. But, you know, life is pretty good. And the thing that I'd done is I, I knew there might be some, you know, changes and challenges. And, you know, I kept my position at ASU. I negotiated a one-year leave. So I always had that in the back of That's my smart. mind that yeah. I didn't have to continue to do this. You know, I had already started prepping my CV because I could see that this just was not going to work uh, over the long term. And so I just started, you know, like I said, I just could not deal with the people in D.C. They, they're trying to gut the presidential library uh, system right now. The Obama people have helped them in that process because there will be no archive for the Obama uh, administration to go visit. It's only going to be online. And they're trying to cut 
cost across the boards. So the uh, what we know as the presidential library system today probably will not exist in five years. They're taking all the classified documents and putting them in DC and gonna put them wow. under one archive. And these are just some of the challenges that right. I saw. And I was like, you know, we love Austin, but I just don't think this is the long-term goal. And I think the best thing about it was it reminded me and probably something we all need to be reminded of how good a life we have as scholars. Um, yeah, there can be headaches, can be that provost or whomever it may be that's a pain in the posterior. But comparatively, I found an institution that was infinitely worse without all the benefits of working with our students and working and having that independence and having that ability to do research without having to have it approved by some bureaucrat in DC. So we parted ways. I went back to ASU uh, and commuted for a year because we did love Austin. Um, you know, didn't want to move the family again after only a year uh, and was looking and I was interviewing. I was finalist for a number of deans uh, positions, including one there in South Carolina uh, at one of my favorite institutions. And so um, you know, that's what we were trying to find something that would be a good place for us, but back in academia and out of the National Archives and that toxic environment that exists, unfortunately, due to leadership, primarily in D.C. Before we, uh, we, we talk about what you're doing now, um, I'm just curious about the, the furlough process. I mean, when, when the government um, takes that, that route, are you allowed to enter the building as the director? Nope. So it's completely Not, shut off, and I imagine you just have a security detail watching those $3 million paintings. Yes. Okay. Uh, one person could be on site, and that was the uh, uh, building manager. Uh, but the rest of us were kicked out. We could not enter. We couldn't even go in and get mail. Um, and so we were prohibited. Uh, you know, And again, that's 35 days. That's from two weeks before Christmas till almost the end of January. Uh, we were out, not able to function. And again, that was, and, and that's always hanging over your head there in this new world that uh, the government employees live in. Uh, that's always hanging over your head. Um, so, you know, there were just so many things. Uh, again, my main uh, issue was the National Archives and the leadership uh, in DC, uh, most incompetent uh, people I've ever met in my life. Uh, only concerned about, uh, you know, it, it didn't even have a vision. These were not people with visions of academia. Like, you know, we can complain about some of our colleagues, but at least people are trying to create new knowledge and, you know, all these man, uh, these different things that spur us on, you know, maybe don't inspire us as much as some other things do, but, you know, we do at least have that intellectual curiosity. And that, well, you're moving, you're moving in a direction. You're, you're, yeah, you're moving you know, in a direction, a positive yeah, direction, right? not just hanging on and, you know, maintaining your position, uh, you know, the Peter principle was two steps, you know, up above their competency. So, you know, um, it, it, so if it, it, it was just a not a good experience dealing with an institution that uh, completely lacking in leadership, you know, it was a good learning experience. And again, it did, the best part was it reminded me of everything that we have. And we got a sweet life, um, you know, as far as when we come to work, our students, our colleagues, uh, the majority of them, it's, it, and then go to the larger uh, organizations. I mean, I wrote a piece in uh, the Schaefer uh, Passport, and uh, 
you know, that was all I talked about was how my people that I knew and Schaefer and colleagues just rallied to my side, uh, just came and supported me. And, you know, they knew what had gone on and they knew what had transpired and they knew who I was. Uh, and I wouldn't bend some principles uh, according to uh, some bureaucratic uh, machinations. And, you know, that, it, it, like I say, it was a good learning experience that I'm not uh, I look as just a step forward to where I am now. Well, yeah, and you you landed on your feet. I mean, you are at Chapman now at the Center for War Diplomacy uh, and Society. And um, how how did that transition take place? I mean, you've gone back to um, to ASU, and now you're out in Orange County. So uh, did did they come calling or? Here's what happened. It's actually a, a really interesting story in that in October of twenty. 19, I was actually an external reviewer uh, brought over to uh, Chapman to evaluate the history department and the Warren Society program, uh, along with great colleague Beth Bailey That's and right, another. Right. Uh, so we were brought over to do, you know, the annual seven year review, uh, annual review. Uh, and so I, you know, I didn't know Jennifer, I didn't know a lot of the people here at Chapman uh, outside of Greg Datus. Um, and so we were here for two full days and, uh, then in, gosh, March, Greg. I want to offer was, a, a point of clarification. Yes. Greg Datis is, by the way, the best dressed historian in the, in America. Oh, so absolutely. I just wanted to make sure that's yeah. clear to our listeners. Uh, nobody will fight that one, you know. Um, my wife gets mad at me because I won't even put on a jacket because I, you know, my life, if it was the way I want to live it, it would be shorts and flip-flops and a, a sweatshirt. Uh, and I would work in that. Uh, but, you know, she'll be the first. But Dadis, oh, he's just so dapper. I, I mean, you know. He's embraced a, California, man. Total, yeah. he's, he totally embraced the whole, yeah. whole vibe. Yeah. Anyway, so, sorry. No, no, don't feel bad. So um, Greg goes down to San Diego State to this wonderful chair at the uh, Midway. And it was a great opportunity for him. I mean, they got a ton of money uh, invested by the Midway Foundation. Uh, and so I think the day after he left, uh, Jennifer King called me and says, Do you, are you interested in this job? And this is in the height of COVID. So, I mean, I joke in the uh, January and February of 2020, I was on 25 segments of Southwest, flying back and forth through Phoenix for the job, but also interviewing for jobs all over the country uh, in Dean's positions, mainly in the South and uh, Oklahoma, places like that. So I did 25 segments on the plane uh, in the wow. two months. And so, you know, I was bouncing all around. And of course, almost every one of those searches got shut down. Um, so, you know, they're moving along. I think, you know, I, I had a couple of offers on the horizon and then boom, gone. But then Jennifer calls. And the great thing about it was being an external reviewer was infinitely better than being on the job, uh, a job talk or a job interview, because you got to see everything, budgets, everybody behind the scenes, you know, people that were going to grouse about things, groused about them. But the thing that stood out to me was how good a department it was, how well they got along, and how 
it's just this up and coming university that is already skyrocketing. Doug Brinkley and I were talking about this a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago. He called me up and says, you know, my daughter's interested in Chapman. He says, five years ago, I didn't know what where Chapman was. And now it's one of the, the buzzwords, you know, one of those universities that's just rising dramatically in the um, rankings and really just a, a wonderful school uh, growing. Um, although I think we've hit our growth because we don't have any place else to grow to because of the surrounding town. But, you know, they called me. And so Jennifer says, all right, would you be interested? I said, absolutely. I said, great department, you know, great program. Um, and, and so then she calls me a week later and says, well, we've had to put the uh, search on hold. Then she calls me back and she says, go, I'm going to keep you updated. Uh, and we still want you. Uh, and again, Maybe if it had been a normal year, I wouldn't have been available by the time um, it came along with these dean's positions. And I was applying, you know, in dean of honors college as well as deans of arts and sciences. And like I say, making it to campus, all these things. But because of COVID, those all either went to internal or they just got shot. So I just waited it out. And, you know, Maria looked at me one day. She says, I'm not going to California. There's no way. You know, she lived out here for five years when she was younger. Not going. Then Jennifer calls back, uh, makes an offer I can't refuse. Uh, you know, I interviewed with the department uh, via Zoom, uh, and but I already knew them all uh, from the, uh, you know, external review. And got a great offer, moved in June, uh, started July 1. And so Greg had done a great job, and Jennifer and if you know anything about our uh, group, you know, Jennifer Keen, top of the World War Ones, Carissa Three, outstanding scholar. Uh, and just across the board for a, a department of 14, we have a, a war and society concentration that is the envy, I think, of most schools in the whole country. Oh, it's, it's you in, yeah. in Southern Miss. You've got the top, yeah. top deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, every search that we do, the person must have some kind of war and society theme. Uh, built in, um, you know, so uh, again, Mateo Harkin, outstanding young scholar from Harvard. I mean, we can just go across the board for, we pack a lot of punch for a, a, a department our size and a program our size. And it's not just our department. We've got wonderful colleagues in political science, uh, sociology, anthropology, uh, law school, uh, and our film school, which is ranked number four in the country. So it was a great opportunity. And Maria changed her tune, fortunately for me. All she insisted was I had to buy her a, a house that was new. Couldn't buy an old fix-me-up. Uh, so we did do that. Well, hey, we've talked a lot about your research, but pretty much everywhere you've been, you've been recognized for your teaching. And so uh, I wonder if you have any, any advice for people listening about teaching philosophy or how you approach it. Um, you know, what's made you so successful in the classroom? Thank you for noting that, because that... If you walk into my office, the first thing I want you to see are my teaching awards. Uh, I don't care if you see my books. Most people don't care as much about those. Um, but my teaching awards are the ones that mean the most to me. You know, being selected both nationally and uh, a number of major awards at ASU. And that's a big freaking university to win an award in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when there's several thousand 
uh, faculty members uh, to be recognized as one of the top faculty there. That was something I took great pride in. But I joke, what I try to do is basically, you know, bring the enthusiasm that we should all have for our, and bring that to class. Have high expectations. You know, ASU is a very different institution than Chapman. The Chapman uh, student body is a very different demographic uh, in terms of affluence, in terms of demography. Uh, ASU, 40% are first generation, 60% work, 20 hours a week more. Probably something that you guys can identify with. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, much closer to that. So what I always try to tell uh, my colleagues is, you know, one, I think I was blessed on two levels. One, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church, and Baptist ministers know how to get people fired up and, <laughs> and teach. I, I think they do a very good job of teaching, uh, you know, biblical so that was where I was raised. My mom was the church secretary all the time, so I couldn't escape. And then the other was my dad was a Texas football coach. And if you know anything about football coaches, they can get after you. But there's a lot of things in coaching that I think translate to the classroom. One is, you know, repetition and having a set sort of way of approaching, not being not being a colleague that will go unnamed at an institution that will go unnamed that just gave their syllabus to the students seven uh, weeks into the semester. You know, there's some things there to be learned. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, having the discipline, uh, but also caring, you know, coaches. Yeah, there are bad coaches, but the genuinely most of them are caring. They spend more time with you than your classroom teachers when you're in high school. And you know, they're there with you five and six hours on Friday nights. They're even longer. So, you know, you get you develop relationships. Here's a couple of things that I do that I would encourage uh, younger colleagues to consider. One is get to class 10 to 15 minutes early and walk around and talk with your students. Yeah. I know you guys probably do that, but I think good teachers do that. If you can get into the classroom, you know, depending on who's in front of you and things like that. Oh, I kick that person out. Yeah. <laughs> run them out. Well, I, I, you know, I'll cut them a little slack, but, you know, get in there and talk to your students, get to know them. My favorite thing that I've been doing probably for the last 15 years is the first of the semester, I have them write a Wikipedia article about themselves. And you'll be amazed what they'll tell you. And I think it's really good because then you, as you're walking around, you're getting to know them, you already have some insights. And one of the things at ASU that was really important is we had so many veterans on campus, uh, about 8,000. And so, you know, they write to you about their military experiences. So when that, young, uh, that uh, guy comes in on the final exam with his comfort dog, the big old German shepherd, you don't even think about it. But, you know, you get to know them, you get to uh, know who they are, you know, some of the background. I just had one, unfortunately, lose his father. So, you know, I've been checking in on him both via email. You know, it's, it's having that compassion and having that concern. Uh, and, and it's easier with some students than others. Some just don't want to have that kind. And it was worse at ASU than I find it here. I mean, here at Chapman, uh, I actually this semester got, uh, had to take over a colleague's class two and a half weeks in because he got sick, which was a challenge because I'd never taught the course. It did integrate me into the undergraduate program, which I hadn't been doing. I've been mainly teaching graduate. Uh, students. And the thing here at Chapman is that as they walk out the door, and I've only got like 18, which, you know, by state school standards, is a very small class. And they say thank you every time they walk out, uh, which I've found quite interesting. But, you know, so I think those are the kind of things caring is a simple uh, element of being a good teacher. Uh, you can overcome a lot of, you know, I 
have a naturally exuberant personality, but my brother, really? who is also a teacher, I, has... I hadn't noticed that. I know. You, you I've known you a long time, and wow. Yeah, I, I know I'm a wallflower. Can't you yeah, see me I, blending into that uh, white background? <laughs> uh, but my brother, who is very different from mine, he's redheaded and freckle-faced and light complexion, for one thing, uh, is very quiet. Uh, but all the students are uh, always know he can, and I think that's it. So my two favorite evaluations, just to sort of give you how this all plays out, are um, we love Dr. Lonley, but for God's sake, do not give that man caffeine before coming to class. <laughs> I took that as a compliment, but my other was, yeah, we we think he's a cross between a Baptist minister and a, and a football coach. And I was like, they got it. Uh, they do. And yeah. one of the great things about moving the Chapman and leaving a, a division one school and coming to a D3 school is I am now assistant track coach. We're uh, gonna ask you about that. Yeah. 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 So I have transitioned to add another uh, feather in my cap because I've been coaching track and field at the high school level for many years and just love it. Football is hard to coach. And I've coached football before at pop horn levels. And you know, just dealing with parents makes that less than optimal experience. Um, but on the other side, you know, track and field, parents don't care. They don't understand the sport and they just don't care because there's yeah. not as many scholarships available, whatever it may be. So I have now uh, started being the throws and multi-events coach at Chapman, track and field coach, assistant track coach at Chapman. Very cool. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, look, so, uh, we, we, we're going to move into our, our rapid fire. Okay. A, aka slow burn i think that's how we're gonna have to refer to it from now on okay. <laughs> because it's uh, it, it it ebbs and flows with it with its speed but the idea is we're going to hit you with 10 questions uh theoretically quickly and uh brian will ask a couple i'll ask a couple we'll switch back and forth and they'll don't want you to think about it too much just gut gut reaction okay brian will get started all right what are you reading that is not history nothing Nothing. <laughs> Not what's right now. What's the last thing you read that wasn't history? God, I'll have to think about that. Oh, man. It's been a while. Okay. Uh, I mean, don't read any Clinton Portis or anything like that. I mean, no, just, no. I, yeah. You know, I was all business, think, huh? It may have been the last thing I read was a biography of John Wesley, which, uh, you know, that might be as close to not related to my research and a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Okay. So those are probably the last two things that I've read. Staying true to those uh, those roots there, right? <laughs> I am. I see it, but I, I, I joke I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. Yeah. Um, and so now, as the joke is, my wife, who was raised Catholic and I was raised Southern Baptist, what do you get in the middle? You get a Methodist. There so, you go, exactly. That's why John Wesley and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So what is the uh, most recent work of history that you've read? Memoir, oral history, what? Anything, anything, anything. I just read this, actually a very interesting book called Cindy in Iraq, a female uh, truck driver uh, working for Halliburton. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's part of my research, but it also was a very interesting, she was uh, a victim of sexual assault, but driving an 18 wheeler uh, down the roads from uh, Kuwait to Baghdad. So it's a pretty interesting story, but I, I've got another one down here uh, about a family uh, that lost two of their sons, uh, including one as a contractor killed in the coast bombings 
2008. So, you know, uh, as my wife asked, when are you going to read something that uh, is not that depressing? And I'm like, well, it's hard to get away from your research. Yeah, it is. All right. Last music you downloaded. What, what have you downloaded recently? I don't listen to music hardly at all. My wife is so aggravated at me because when we get in the car, I turn everything off. I drove from Austin, Texas to California and never turned on music or a radio. And so it's just not, you know, if I listen to it, it's usually my wife uh, putting her playlist on and it's usually on the way to church on Sunday morning. So it's contemporary Christian, which you, I enjoy immensely. You need, we, you need help. You, you, you're you're going to well, become a project. Well, there, there's, look at your story. Hey, do you know how many people say that about me? <laughs> oh, I know. A lot. Yeah, a <laughs> yeah. lot. <laughs> a lot. So, yeah, I'm just not that interesting. Uh, but, yeah, I, I just, I, I like quiet. Okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, if you can't answer this one, then we're just going to quit. Okay. All right. Pearl or Lone Star? Neither. <laughs> Which I what, what alcohol, then? I don't drink alcohol. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you know, those God, Southern Baptists. This is just Baptist, a bust. This is just a disaster. I, you know, those Southern Baptist roots are just hard to escape. Yeah, they are hard. Oh, in man. But, wow. you know what, but here's a good one. Here's what my favorite. Okay, Coker, uh, Dr. Pepper or um, Mr. Pibb. <laughs> What's the other oh. Texas one? You probably don't even drink caffeine. No, no, I, I actually have given up caffeine about five years ago. But if I do do caffeine, it will always be Dr. Pepper. Okay. That is All my right. that, favorite that, drink in the whole freaking world. Okay, that's it's, redeeming. That's redeeming. Yeah, All yeah, right, it, okay, we're, we're going to be okay. Pepper. Yeah, okay. It, it, right. I mean, I gave up caffeine because, you know, the students told me to. <laughs> well, I've, I've got one here that you can definitely answer. Okay. LBJ in one word. Bastard. <laughs> Fair enough. Noted. Now that you're in California, what's the most California thing that you do? Boogie board. That's pretty wow. That's pretty California. Yeah, yeah. Embrace. If, if wow. I could learn to surf, I would, but uh, the knees won't work anymore like that. Yeah. But my youngest, the 16-year-old, uh, has, has started to learn to surf. So yeah, boogie boarding is one of my favorite things to do. And going to the beach, we're only about 45 minutes to a, uh, a number of beaches, both in North San Diego and uh, Huntington in Newport. So, you know, uh, when you get a chance, we've got this great Vietnam War conference coming up April 1 and 2 in 2022. Come out, we're 15 minutes from Disneyland, five minutes from uh, the Angels and Ducks uh, stadiums, and 20 minutes from the beach. I am hoping to be there. Uh, well, um, we're gonna, you don't get a choice. I'm going to figure out how, I'll come get you. And drag right, that, that we can send good. Bill out there for sure. Yeah, that sounds yeah. good. Uh, now, we've already kind of discussed this a little bit, but I'm going to go ahead and ask him. The one thing you really love about teaching, if you had to boil it down to just one, one thing. Student interactions. I mean, Excellent. just getting, you know, I just was, uh, you know, just a name drop a little bit. I was just talking uh, this weekend with Jim McCain, John McCain's son, uh, who had done two tours in Iraq, two tours in Afghanistan. Uh, and now it's going back into the reserves and is at OCS in Fort Huachuca. So, you know, you develop those kind of relations. And that's just one of so many. You know, we get in trouble. Uh, he was in one of my classes. That's where I got to know him. And he and a group would come down to my office hours, a lot of veterans, and somehow I seemed to connect. I'd have to tell them to stop using so much profanity. 
because of my colleagues around. I was just, you know, these were ex-Marines and, you know, Army, and you can guess how many F-bombs were being dropped on a, a daily basis. But it's those kind of things that you get. And, you know, like, uh, I've got one in particular. He, he, he took one of my classes 15 years ago, and I still consider him one of my sons. Uh, he's up in doing his PhD in computer science at Northeastern. And I used to talk to him weekly while he was in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, those kind of relationships that you're able to create that are lasting, naming many jobs that have that kind of things. So for me, students and student interaction. Okay, well, you, then you walked right into this one then, because the next one is what drives you nuts about students? When they're disrespectful. You know, I have those Southern roots and you know, the Yaz and, you know, uh, or when they try to call me by my first name out of the bat. Or you get the uh, email that says, hey, professor. Oh, yeah. or you, worse. Here's my favorite right. story on that. I was giving out at final exams uh, back, you know, it was about 10 years ago and it was online, maybe 15 years ago. And we were potty training one of my uh, sons, I think the youngest. So I'm sending out, one was on U.S. Latin American relations. One was on um, Vietnam. So he comes running in. I'd sent the Vietnam one out. So he comes running in. I've got to go. And anybody that's ever potty trained knows you run. You don't hesitate. Yeah. Well, then I came back and I sent out the next exam. Well, I sent out the Vietnam War exam to the U.S. Latin American relations guys because I was sort of discombobulating. Well, immediately I started getting emails back. Wrong test, wrong test. Well, two hours later, I get another one. Says, are you kidding me to imply that but it took them two hours to figure out they had the wrong exam that kind of stuff drives me nuts so you know but the good thing is i think that would drive me more nuts if the students is if the parents got involved and i have that's the best part of our job is we just say ferpa can't talk to you and so if that kind of stuff happened it's happened a little in my early in my career but has not happened in forever but yeah just being disrespectful and not respecting the position, I think. And I know my colleagues, a lot of my colleagues that are female say they run into it infinitely more than I do. Yeah, uh, yes, no, that's, that, that's true. That, that, I, you may, guys might not get it as much there in uh, the South, but Arizona was a lot of people from the Midwest. They just didn't have the same. My boys uh, were raised to say yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And in Arizona, that stuck out like a sore, sore thumb. Now, most people liked it, but it did stand out. Now, we know that you hit the uh, retirement community circuit pretty hard. What is the, uh, what's the best talk you've ever given at a retirement community? Ooh. Well, I was lucky in ASU. They had this thing called the President's Enrichment Program. So I can get 60 or 70 people in a room. They were the self-described affluent and influential of Scottsdale Paradise Valley. So, you know, you might be talking in your front row to someone that was the founder of Doubletree Hotels. Next to him was the founder of, uh, you know, former CEO of Aetna, just a who's who of uh, people. But the best one was I, I had a student named Sidney Rittenberg, which you may not know his name, but look it up. He had been uh, part of, I think, part of the OSS in China in 1945 and stayed and became a prominent advisor to Mao. Oh, wow. And stayed there through the Cultural Revolution when he was put under house arrest. But Sydney was like 92 in one of my classes. And so he'd tell me his stories like I was talking about the Korean War one day and he goes, yeah, I remember when Mao got the news that his son had been killed in Korea. 
So that kind of things that, you know, people ask me why I like to do development. Well, uh, one of the things is when you get out and do development and get into the community, there's so many stories to be heard. And, you know, from veterans of World War II, whatever it may be, I love just meeting people and uh, hearing their stories. And I think we as historians, we're, we're doing oral history all the time. We may not be taking it all down, but we're doing oral history. Right. And everybody wants to tell us their historical stories. Yeah. So what, that's pretty sweet. What do you miss most about Austin? Barbecue. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. barbecue and Tex-Mex. Although we have found, Bill, if you come out, uh, we have found a good Tex-Mex place called Casa Garcia. Uh, in Anaheim, not far from Disneyland. So that has been the one saving grace, but barbecue, they're not even in the ballpark. So you know, we, we asked, we, we talked with Jim Wilbanks uh, not yeah. too long ago and, and, you know, they're, they're in Georgetown, Texas. We asked him that, you know, what's the best Tex-Mex or whatever. And he, he was just like, God, it's on every single corner. You know, how can you choose? And they, then he settled on, on the, the, the breakfast ta tacos at the Exxon down the street. <laughs> which is often the case right oh absolutely because no, they're made locally you know and 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 pretty and authentic a lot of times and oh stuff. absolutely but the yeah. barbecue is the main thing especially yeah. brisket people don't yeah. know how to do brisket and right. so um you know my brian, sister brian doesn't get it he's a port I'm, he's a I'm, he's south carolina port yeah. guy you know it's a ne negligence in his upbringing yeah. uh, i'm sorry <laughs> So. I'm so sorry. Uh, it's like my friends from Kansas City trying to tell me theirs is good. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, yeah, barbecue by far. Excellent. Well, hey, man, uh, this was outstanding and, and just really a, a, a joy for us to, to talk with you today. And I know uh, people listening to this are going to really, uh, really enjoy it and, and be and be inspired because you're, you're just you're really you're just such such a positive influence. Uh, I know you have been on me, but but on your students, your colleagues, everything, and we, we really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Well, really it's my great pleasure. Thank both of you for doing this and making putting a human face on our profession. I think a lot of times people forget that you know a lot of us don't come from that elite coastal backgrounds, and that yeah. you know we've come up from a very different kind of background, and right. we're not all cut from the guys that uh, like it harder. Not to criticize or anything like that but they live in a uh, many of them have come up in a very different manner than what we have but we love what we do and i think again going back to the library that would be the thing that i would point out is that was the greatest element of getting renewed and rejuvenated to realize how good we have life you know i get a, hopefully another good 20 years in me you know barring health issues or things like that and i hope i just continue to have this same passion for our profession for our fields and you know the greatest part of the whole job and i made this point in that passport article is the people we get to meet our colleagues Absolutely. like yourselves yeah. right yeah. right you know we're a good group of people now i wouldn't want to be a medieval historian or byzantine historian they strike me as a little different but <laughs> you know and i've watched how they operate and they almost adapt their uh field you know hopefully us diplomatic guys are a little more you know, use a little foreign relations or, you know, some kind of negotiations, but, you know, we're blessed. Yeah, we got to talk to Kelly DeVries and see what he has to say about that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but uh, like I said, they're not all that way, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so I, I appreciate you guys doing this, taking your valuable time to do something uh, that really puts a face on us. And I, uh, anytime that I can help, I'll be more than happy to do so. And if people are out there interested, I'm going to give one final plug. 
if you're interested in, especially over here on the West Coast, uh, in war and society and now war diplomacy and society, uh, look us up. We've got an outstanding program that uh, we would love to have you uh, be part of. Excellent, man. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks. Take care. All right. You guys have a good one. That's great, wasn't it? That was great. That was, that was, that was uh, you know, I, I imagine that having him in the classroom is, uh, is something that students look forward to. He's, uh, yeah. he's, he's clearly excited about what he gets to do for a living. Right. And, uh, and when students uh, recognize that, it's usually uh, creates a good environment. Well, and he's, and he's just, you know, he's a wonderful scholar. He, he always has great ideas. He's always working on something or two or three somethings and but but he also produces the work you yeah. know the stuff comes out and and it's well received and meaningful and, and contributes and uh but but he's i don't know whenever i get in a rut um with especially writing and stuff uh i, I, I chat with kyle kind of gets me back and, and this just spending this time right here my wheels are already spinning yeah you know, when i get back to my office i got i'm gonna write some notes down and, well you know, let's get something done. That's that's one of the, <laughs> the good things about about doing this podcast is um, people are doing so much good work that it does make you realize you need to kind of stop talking about doing stuff and do it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> What's the old thing? You can't make a reputation on what you say you're going to do. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, but that was fun, and look forward to the next one. And and boy, we're 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 cranking along, man. Yeah, and so uh, you know, for for. Anyone out there who's on the job market or in a grad program, you're not going to be rich doing what we do for a living. But, uh, you know, as my daughter told me this morning, you got a pretty good schedule and um, you get to meet a lot of really interesting people. And uh, Kyle, he, he reminded us that uh, this is not a bad profession. Uh, yeah. to be in get to right. meet a lot of a lot of uh really there's good there's 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 wealth in other ways yeah absolutely uh, in, in spades but yeah uh keep checking us out anchor spotify we're on itunes now uh we've got a, a twitter feed which is at yeah, i can't remember M what it is at, now. at m h p t pod pod right? at m h t p pod yeah absolutely. or podcast yeah. just just search military historians with people too you'll you'll yeah. find it uh, we'll, 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 next time we'll remember that. We'll better. get all this stuff. Yeah, we'll out. get it all straight. We're still learning. But thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not B.J. Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.